Take your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, this is kind of a fun time. Um, I love preaching any passage. I even enjoy seeing the glory of Christ in the judgment and revelation. Um, but it's kind of fun to preach stories that, for me, growing up in the church, I know well. Um, and yet, you dive deep and you feel like you've never read them before. You have a passage such as this. We're not going to get there this morning. But John 3.16, which... I didn't see it yesterday because I didn't watch a lot of college football, but I imagine those of you who did probably saw it somewhere. And this is a context for John 3.16 that we're going to see this morning, and then we'll get into that um, next week. And I think without the context of John 3, 1 through 11, or you could say John 3, 1 through 15, you really are going to miss the weight, the power. Um, And in some ways you could say, although it's, Easy enough to see that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. As simple as that is, and it kind of stands on its own, this context of how do you believe, what's the nature of belief, and the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus on that you need to be born again is massively important that we understand that. And even as we preach the gospel and we understand the gospel, that we understand and teach this truth as well. So look with me, John chapter 3, let's look at verse 1. We'll go ahead and just read through verse 11. Uh, 11 is kind of, you could say, that transition piece where you're going to move into 12. This is part of a larger section, which we'll probably draw out a few things as you kind of try to pull out overall what John is doing throughout the whole larger section, which of course that includes not only... Um, two, three, four, but also he's doing something to move you to his main point of believing in Christ, that he is the Son of God. But let's begin by just reading our text together. John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's what what has been born of the flesh is flesh and That which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from where and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you not... Are you the teacher of Israel, and do you not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. Father, we come now, Lord, even being humbled by the truth of the necessity of regeneration, the necessity of being born again, Lord, that we even though so exposed to your word, even in a broader cultural sense to the New Testament, 
And yet this was true and has always been true. That for one to come to you, there is only one way. And that you must move. It is your work, your act. We need a new heart. We need new desires. Not simply reformed, but transformed. Help us see those truths this morning. Let them humble us. And by being so humbled, by the end, may you be lifted up even higher as we see how glorious it is a thing that you did send your son. For there was no other way for us to be born again. And if we were not born again, therefore then no way to see, to enter into the kingdom of God. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I know as you read a passage like this and you run through it and you maybe have heard it before, there is a way in which you maybe don't let it kind of wash over you in a new way, maybe hit you in a different way. You're so familiar with John chapter 3 and especially John chapter 3 verse 16, I think we can kind of glance over it and I know that because that's been my experience throughout my life. And as I study and I study and I study, even then, moments like this morning where you start to feel like, wow. There's so much more here in this text. In fact, what I would say about these first 11 verses we're going to look at and focus on this morning is that if I really read them and try to put myself in a way that I've not read them before, these first 11 verses are actually very, very unsettling. This is bothersome. There's something unsettling and a finality. If you understand the question and answer of this being recorded, this kind of narrative discourse being recorded. A lot of times in John, we're going to see miracles recorded. And sometimes you're going to see this kind of discourse or a conversation recorded that's going to explain the truth that John wants, that's going to point us to who Jesus is. But this conversation, if we understand it, which hopefully we will better by the end of this morning and next week, it is unsettling because of what it highlights. And I think Nicodemus probably gets to get more credit than he often does. I always remember reading this and hearing sermons on this as I grew up in church and kind of going, Nicodemus, you silly bird. Why, why, why don't you understand this? You should know this. I think he kind of maybe doesn't understand in full, but he definitely is following the analogy. And the analogy is, Jesus, you're saying something is necessary that is related to something that is not possible. What do you want me to do? How? Why? Verse 9. How can these things happen? How can these things be? And it highlights our hopeless condition. This is a real conversation with a real man. But he also stands out very much as representative in the sense that Nicodemus is not just anyone, as we will see here. This is someone who is by knowledge and by position Someone that would be highly revered. And by having this conversation with him, we are left with, well, if someone so intelligent, so obedient to the law, can't understand or can't be born again, then how is it possible? This new birth is something we cannot cause. And there's something unsettling about God being absolutely free and us not being. There's something that we can't do. 
As I said, we kind of sit in the glow, hopefully, of the glories of what Christ has done in the gospel, but we kind of forget that this is something that he must cause. And if you are not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. If you want to kind of, like I said, we might flip around in three a little bit, but you kind of get to the end here, and you go to verse 36, and John the Baptist says it this way, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Good news. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Well, if this new birth is necessary for one to believe, then we better understand it to a greater degree. I thought of historical books on this issue because we kind of are starting to bump up against this idea of free will or the nature of will, the nature of choices. And there's no way around it. And if we address it a little here, we're going to address it again when we get to John chapter 6. And so you think of a couple well-known historical books which had kind of opposing titles, but they believe the same thing. So Martin Luther is well-known, the reformer, and he has a book titled The Bondage of the Will. And of course, you kind of go, okay, based on the title, without even reading the book, you can kind of understand what he's communicating is we are slaves to sin. Our will is bound to our fleshly human nature. We are flesh born of flesh. And so we are fleshly, to use Jesus' argument here. It's kind of a negative way to put it, but a positive way you could say Jonathan Edwards who wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. He uses it, kind of frames it in a positive light, but his point is the same. Your will is only so free as your ability to choose. And really more Edwards' argument is he's arguing on desires, that you're going to be free to choose what you want to choose, but you're not going to choose what you don't want to choose. And the point here is, apart from God making your heart new, this is Old Testament language, you being born again, you won't have a desire, and therefore you're not going to choose, so you need God to give you a new heart. It is that it is God who is acting first. We must be born again. This is Jesus saying nothing in one sense new, as he's going to point back to Old Testament language. He's even going to imply that one who knows the word, Nicodemus, should understand these truths. But it's another way in which we move in John to say, the Messiah has come. You need to understand what that means and what it means to believe. Not just in the Old Testament truths, not just in the law, but what all of that points to, which is Christ himself. And so we're going to see this morning that Jesus is going to teach. I think this is important here with we understand who Nicodemus is, that no matter who you are, the chief among the Jews, he's one of the Sanhedrin, we learn later in the Gospels, which is one of 70 leaders. He's a Pharisee, that is, you can't get anyone who is more strict, morally, at least exter- externally moral. He would be the quintessential person who'd say, that is a good guy. Doesn't matter if you're a good guy, who you are, doesn't matter what you've accomplished, how many people you have helped. This is a reality that is true of every single person that has ever lived, which is you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. One of the first things we're going to see here with Nicodemus is he recognizes Jesus as authoritative. He recognizes Jesus as someone who is not just merely the average teacher. He's seen miracles. He's seen signs. He kind of refers to it here in the plural. And yet he 
does not have a saving faith at this moment. Which I think is also kind of terrifying, the human nature. is He can see all those things, but he doesn't yet believe. Why? Because he doesn't have a new heart. He hasn't been born again. So let's look at this. We're going to see these, some truths about the new birth, particularly four truths about the new birth. And the one which is kind of going to be, you could say, almost repeated all the way throughout is that it is necessary. The new birth is necessary. That is, it's not optional. It's not for some and not for others or, you know, for what he would understand. The Jew doesn't need to be invited into the kingdom of God. They're already in the kingdom of God. They don't need to convert. Very similar to what we saw in chapter 1 with John the Baptist. The kind of controversial thing that John the Baptist is doing is he is baptizing Jewish believers or Jewish at that point, right? People who are saying, we believe what you are teaching John. He's baptizing Jews and they're saying, Pharisees, you, you don't need to do that. You, you only need to baptize Gentile converts. But no, I don't. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. New birth is necessary. There's a flow here, backing up to chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25, that a similar issue has happened. So remember we talked about the cleansing of the temple. What was the problem at the cleansing of the temple? Was it an issue of knowledge? An issue of a sign? Or was it an issue of belief? Well, it was an issue of belief. They already had a sign, and he's going to say there is going to be a sign, even the greatest sign, his resurrection, that it's going to come. And you see this movement, 23, 24, 25, that I think flows into chapter 3. That they saw the signs, which he was doing in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not trusting himself to them because he knew all men. Because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Which is terrifying. Because he knows things about each one of us that no one else knows. And maybe if they did, no one would want to be friends or close to any of us. He knows everything. But also maybe comforting if we understand the rest of chapter 3, which we're going to get to, not so much, we'll kind of touch it by the end. But he also knows us in a way that no one else does and knows our needs. And he is going to provide for those needs. But what is then the question? Why put this there, John? Why say he knows what's in the heart of man? Well, what's in the heart of man is something called sin. Something that needs to be dealt with. And I think that's the implication here of using this language. And we're going to see the... New Testament language of regeneration, born again, water, and spirit. But it's going to refer to Old Testament passages that talk about water and spirit and the stony heart being transformed into the heart that is soft. And so we're going to see here, verse 1, that we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus, who simply is a man of the Pharisees, at least in this context. There's some speculation historically who he is and. It would seem, though, that this is a well-respected, powerful man, a ruler of the Jews. So this is not the average person. This man came to Jesus, verse 2, by night and said to him, Rabbi, which simply, we saw that chapter 1, right? Teacher, revered, but still not Messiah, not Christ, Rabbi. We know, and that we seems to imply as well, that there is... Him coming almost representatively, or at least speaking on behalf of perhaps the rulers or the Pharisees themselves and saying, hey, we're asking these questions and I, I, I want to know more. Much is made of him coming at night. Night throughout the Gospel of John is usually not a good thing. 
night, light, darkness are pitted against one another. But probably at least on the most basic level, he is trying to avoid anyone knowing what he is doing. He wants to go, he wants to ask a question with the, the least possible ramifications. And he's going to come. And he says this to Jesus, which you'll note, it isn't really a question. And we don't maybe have all of the conversation, but I find it fascinating the way John records it as such, as the Spirit inspired him, that he comes seemingly implying, although not asking a question here, but wanting to know more, right? So he's coming with a posture of, I want to learn, I have questions, and yet Jesus will then turn around and be the one who questions him. Very similar to a lot of encounters with Christ, including the woman at the well, where he's going to ask her questions in response to her questions. And so he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No, again, just as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. This is one of those statements that seems so good, but misses the mark. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to say that... Say, for example, in our culture, someone might look and say, Jesus is a good person. He has really good moral teachings. I like Jesus. But that's not the same thing as what John wants you to do, which is believe, trust in Jesus and who he is. That's more than knowing about him, more than even believing facts about his life or his power. And so it's a little bit indicting as you kind of look at this these first uh, three verses. And Jesus is going to take that phrase, that statement to say, okay, this is who you think I am. I think the implied question is, who are you? And Jesus isn't going to entertain that question here, but he's going to kind of move the subject to, okay, I think you're asking, implying something about the Messiah, something about the kingdom. And so this is the conversation Jesus wants to have. I don't know if Nicodemus is ready for this conversation. This is the one Jesus wants to have in verse 3. And so he responds and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How does that relate to verse 2? How does this relate to chapter, uh, the whole of Gospel of John? There's an expectation of the coming Messiah. He sees it. The Jews in chapter 2, verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? I think they see it. There's a lot of expectation. John the Baptist, it's not him, but he's pointing to another. So Jesus cuts right to the chase and says, what do you think about this? Truly, truly, verily, verily, that is, this is emphasizing. If you want to see the kingdom of God, there's a requirement. And he uses an analogy that you must be born again. Literally, you could say born from above, but I think he's taking a born, right, begotten, which is interesting because that's been another thing, big word for John, this idea of just like you were born into this world, you have to be born spiritually as well. In fact, it's necessary or you cannot see, which is the same idea, see, enter into the kingdom of God. Observe as you look at these three verses what's so shocking about what Jesus is saying. And what is shocking is that Nicodemus is the model in every way. And he's being told, You will not see the kingdom of God unless something happens to him. And that something is something he can't do. And his whole life, which has been geared towards obedience, which Jesus isn't saying obedience is bad, he's just saying that's 
not what gets you to see, to enter into the kingdom of God. His understanding of salvation through observance of the law, tradition. The analogy Jesus picks of birth, say opposed to a new heart, both are not possible in the sense that I think Nicodemus picks up on. He emphasizes the passive nature of saving faith. Just like you being born, did you choose the day or the hour or the parents? No. We just are born. It's happening to us. And you can't cause regeneration. And in Nicodemus' mind, his whole world is over. I exist and I accomplish. I do. And Jesus is saying, just by this analogy, entering the kingdom of heaven, seeing the kingdom of God, is not something you can go do. That's unsettling when you've spent your whole life measuring yourself by accomplishments and achievements. One needs to be transformed. And if Nicodemus, with all his knowledge, and I would imagine there, being a ruler, his wealth, gifts, his understanding, his political position, if he can't be saved, then who can? I think that's what you're meant to be as a reader coming away from here. If this is true of Nicodemus, well, it's definitely true of the rest of of you and I. But let's see how Jesus further explains the nature of this new birth. Saying it's just necessary. He leaves it at that. And of course, it's going to spark a conversation where Jesus is going to explain another truth about the new birth, which is that it is spiritual. You kind of see it there. Born again. Is, is it born from above? And so, something heavenly versus something earthly. But he's going to, no pun intended, flesh that out as he works through this argument. And he goes on in verse 4. And Nicodemus responds, says, okay, I'm tracking. And I really do think Nicodemus is tracking to some degree. He just is caught off the guard with the impossibility and going, well, then how? I'm tracking with you, but that doesn't sound possible. And so Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's tracking on the birth side. This doesn't make any sense. You don't, at 50, get back in. Everyone knows that. This is common sense. But they're also teachers. Jesus is a teacher. Nicodemus is a teacher. And I think they're dealing within analogies. And you say, okay, how is this possible? Well, Jesus' answer in verse 5 is going to be simply that. Emphasizing again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That must, that emphasis, that reality. Verse 14, Moses lifted up a servant in the wilderness. See, next week, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And even later in this chapter, verse 36, when John the Baptist says, you must increase, I must decrease. You must be born again. So it's necessary, yes, but here in this Verse 4 through 7, it is, the nature of it is outside of this world. It is spiritual. It is heavenly. It is a birth that comes from above. Which you can't help. Hasn't been that long ago, right? John chapter 1, 1 through 5. Where is Jesus from? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That is, Jesus is God. Jesus is from the heavenly. In fact, it's explicit later in John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come, Jesus says, from heaven. 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this is the one man, because he's not just a man, who understands this heavenly reality because he is from heaven. And he's come down. And they were kind of, like I said, the first 11 verses are a little more unsettling. It's a little bit more of the bad news. But his emphasis is to say, you must be, reiterated, be born again. And let me explain it more by saying, of the water and the spirit. Of the water and the spirit. Now, there's some debate over the nature of this. And you can see it probably just by looking. Well, why does he add water in this? Is he discussing the physical birth process? It seems to be, and I would argue, tied more together tightly to verse 3, born again, and verse 7, born again. And it seems to be just another way of saying born again. So I don't think necessarily it's referring to baptism in any way or to natural birth, although I understand how one sees that. But probably is pushing in on saying, let me grab Old Testament language for Nicodemus, that he might understand that I'm talking about cleansing, that I'm talking about Old Testament language, because he's using an analogy of birth, which would be somewhat new. But water takes you back. Water takes you back to Ezekiel 36, verse 24, verse 28. And this is Jesus' way, I think, of saying, rightfully being able to go, Nicodemus, how do you not know these things? Think back. Ezekiel 36, 24, 28. And and this is probably Nicodemus maybe thinking too nationalistically. And not thinking individually enough. Maybe that, that, yeah, the nation needs to be cleansed, but individually, I don't need to be cleansed. And Jesus is saying, no, no, this is, yes, this is true of the new covenant, which Christ has inaugurated in his blood. It doesn't necessarily negate that this isn't going to happen nationalistically. And perhaps that is a hang up for him because he's expecting Christ to come as a conquering Messiah. But it's here where you see this language that is equated to the new birth, this language of regeneration. God saying, Ezekiel 36, verse 24, that I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness, from your idols. So more than that, more than water, more than cleansing, which I think that's why probably he adds the water in there. You need cleansing, but you need something more than cleansing. You need a new heart. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you, start to get this I, and we could look at a lot of other passages. I, I, I. This is what God does over and over. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. And you will inhabit the land that I gave to your father, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. I think there's other passages, perhaps, that are flashing through Nicodemus' mind. And, and Jesus, I think, is trying to get after this to say, hey, you understand this has been a consistent issue. Israel needs something more than repentance in that sense, Right? Just them going and offering sacrifices isn't the end-all, be-all. They actually need God to come in and do something miraculous. Described here in John 3 as a new birth, a Ezekiel 36, a new heart, a new nature. So they have new desires, a desire to believe. We always tend to make it about knowledge, signs. 
I need to know more. I need to see more. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You, you, you need to desire different things. No matter how good someone's credentials are, Nicodemus being the chief of all, it's, it's necessary that you are born again from above. Why? Verse 6 simply says it this way. Jesus is trying to make this simple argument that you have been born flesh is born of flesh. That is to say, dogs have dogs, cats have cats, horses have horses, right? Humans have humans. That's a problem, though. Because unregenerate people born once, not born twice, are not going to see the kingdom of heaven. So this isn't necessarily good news, right? This is bad news because we are, have the same issues as, say, you go all the way back to Adam and Eve. That's where we trace our lineage. Flesh is of flesh. That which is born, though, of the Spirit is of the Spirit. Which is him saying, you've been born once, yes, but you, to see the kingdom, have to be born again from above, from the Spirit. And then he says so in verse 7, that do not marvel. Don't be surprised. Don't be so shocked, Nicodemus, when I say these to you. I think Nicodemus doesn't see how radical his need is, how radical Israel's need is. And Jesus is just saying, listen, you should know these things. This is how massive the problem is. You don't need a little helping hand into the kingdom. You need a completely new heart. You need to be resurrected. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't marvel. You must. It's necessary. It's absolute. You must be born again. So the new birth is necessary. The new birth is spiritual. And thirdly, you're going to see this, add a word to your vocabulary in verse 8, this idea that the new birth regeneration is monergistic. And by that I mean it in the sense as in opposition to synergistic. Monergism being, monergism being that understanding regeneration here, the new birth of an individual, is the work of God through the Spirit alone. Over and against synergism, that human will cooperates with God's grace in order to be regenerated. This isn't the same thing you see in, say, for example, Philippians 2, verse 12 through 13, that just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so, just briefly, you see 12, that, hey, work it out. Work hard. And understand it's God who's working in you. And I think there he's talking about our sanctification, our growth in becoming more like Christ. God's working in us. We're working as hard as we can. That's that idea of, right? Working with, cooperating with God. But salvation? Conversion? Regeneration? No. It is something that God does through His Spirit on His own. Why? Because we have nothing we can add, right? There's no good work, no good deed that we can add. I like this in Titus 3, verse 5. It said, It saved us. Christ saved us. Titus 3, 5. Not by works which we do in righteousness, but according to His mercy through what? The regeneration, the washing, the renewing by the Holy Spirit. And he does so, verse 8 here. Why do I say it's modern? Why do I say this is God's work alone? Not only because 
What is impossible with man, says in Luke, Jesus says, is possible with God. So he can do the impossible, number one. But it's against our nature. We're dead in our trespass to sin, Ephesians says. It's God who is the potter. We are the clay, as Romans says. But even more so, look at the analogy here. If you were wondering about birth, you go, well, it's not something I can cause. How, does, how is this possible? According to the point is it's not possible unless God does something who can do the impossible. But also he uses the analogy of the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So just take that at face value. Everyone who's born of the Spirit, which is his way of saying born again, everyone who's born again is done so in a way that you can't go back and say, I can predict it, I can control it. It's something that just happens. I love this analogy because you could argue historically, contextually, culturally that they know less about, say, meteorology than we do. So we have meteorologists on TV who predict weather. And I love that even today with all of our technology, how often are they wrong? And you could say if if you watch the weather a lot, uh, you know how wrong they are usually. Uh, But not just temperature, not just they miss the kind of fast-forming storm, but even on the wind, seven-mile wind out of the north. Just start looking for a little bit if you're curious. You go, okay, let's watch. And then all of a sudden, there's no wind. Oh, it's going to be 25-mile-an-hour wind, and it's 40. We said it's going to come from the north, and then all of a sudden, it comes from the south. Even with all our technology, we know there's a sense in which there is an unpredictable nature to the wind, even more so for them the original audience reading this, how unpredictable they would understand the wind. And the point here is that the wind does something, and you can see the evidence of its working. You look out at the trees. I have a tree in my front yard, and that's what I look in the morning, and I go, is it blowing or not? Is there wind or is there no wind? And then it's going, which way is it blowing? Is it a north wind? Is it a south wind? You can see the evidence of it. You can't predict it, but you can see it. You can't predict the spirit. You can't control the spirit, but you cannot deny its effects. I think of my own life and many lives here. God has changed, given me new desires. I don't know exactly how. Some of us can point more to a point of conversion in a moment. Going, man, I just know I believe the gospel and I was different yesterday than today. I did not love the truth, love the Lord yesterday, and today I do. For some, it might be a little more fuzzy and a little more blurry, but the point is, you start looking back and you almost have a moment of saying, I don't know why I chose this or chose that. You might even have parents if you got converted later in life. I know many individuals converted in college who came to saving faith in Christ in college, and their parents look back and go, who are you? Some of my favorites are pastors. You hear their stories. I was converted at a younger age. And they weren't necessarily some of these, you know, have these wild stories or anything like that. But I feel familiar with Steve Lawson. I just kind of love hearing his story because he was a quarterback for Texas Tech and the, the kind of quintessential jock who hated books and hated studying and hated reading. And he got converted in college. And he says when his dad walked into his study for the first time and saw all these books, you know, a typical pastor's library, and thinking... Who is this boy? 
He would never read, never study. Well, he has a new desire to study, to learn, to grow. Why? Because he wants to know more about Christ. He wants to know more about his word and he wants to preach that truth. New desires are going to equal that changed life with new behavior. But this is something God must do. The other analogy in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, is resurrection. We don't take part in resurrection. You were, Ephesians 2, 1, dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So what were you? You were dead in your trespasses. This isn't, okay, we just need a little help. No, this is you need radical transformation. You need somebody to come in and give you something new. And that's exactly what God says he will do, as we'll see with the good news towards the end here. And so the new birth is something that God does. That is, is his work, regeneration, the new birth. That is his work. We're not going to add any of our works to it. It's something that he does. He does alone. He gets the glory alone for it. But no, and you'll see this throughout John. You're saying, well, if you can't do it, why does John say believe? Well, because ultimately that new nature, that new birth bears belief. The new birth bears belief. That is, we're going to see it flow out. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Or maybe better, how can these things happen? How is this possible? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? That's a loaded question. I imagine it would be a little bit offensive. But also, at the same time, looking back, studying Ezekiel 36, studying the promised new covenant, looking at the history of Israel, it's one of failure. They don't need a little help. They need drastic surgery. They need new desires, new hearts. Their pattern of idolatry is what's there. That's what's consistent, not a pattern of worship. There's a way in which Nicodemus, you may not have known how all this works out, but the idea that you have to be born again from above, that you can't save yourself, that you can't work your way into the kingdom, should not be that shocking to you, especially with the history that you know of your Israel, being a teacher of Israel. How do you not understand these things? In verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. You might notice there, you, you see this kind of movement between the singular and plural. It's Jesus, who's he talking about? Uh, it's either likely that he goes back to verse 2 and picks upon the we and says, let me answer in response to that we. Some look at the we and being more. You can do this in Greek with adding kind of authority and power by using the plural. Either way, I think verse 7 is actually a good example. Verse 7, you say, do not marvel what I said to you, which is in the, we don't see it in English, but it's there. You is singular. He's talking to Nicodemus. And then he responds, you must be born again, and you there is a plural. Y'all must be born again. So there's a way in which they're having a broader conversation, and probably why I think he picks up there in verse 11, that we speak of what we know bear witness of what we have seen and you do not accept our witness. The issue is not knowledge. The issue is not signs. The issue is not miracles. The issue is you've not believed our witness. Now that sounds a lot like John. 
Dallas Sneak of Nicodemus, he himself has taught for years. People have come to him and said, how do I enter the kingdom, Nicodemus? Nicodemus has taught them how. And he said, well, obey the laws and do these things and be a good adherent to law, the the law, God's commands. Have devotion to him. Submit to him. And then to be told, no. You have to be born again to him is absolutely shocking. He should know better. We won't go there, but you can make a little note. Think of where in the Bible does this tie it together so well. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to go there. We're not going to go there. But all that is say, there's not just New Testament examples, right? How is Abraham saved? Why does he go follow God? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So it's not completely shocking to hear say, oh, this is a belief issue. Nicodemus would then have to follow up, well, then why don't we believe? And to say, the scriptures are clear. It's because you need a new heart. You need God to change you from the inside out. Nicodemus' problem is the same problems that the Jews have with Jesus at the cleansing of the temple at the end of chapter 2, which is, he wants more information, more signs. Jesus isn't going to let him have it. He's going to say, no, you have enough. You've seen. We, verse 2, we, we know that you have come from God. And he's going, yeah, but I don't believe. Believe, yes, you're a man from God, but there's not a movement into I trust and believe that you are God's son. Not a problem of information. It is a problem of belief. And so that movement of new birth isn't just that it's necessary or spiritual or that it's God's work, but that it bears or it kind of births out belief. That is, if God regenerates a heart, it has new desires, and the first thing it's going to do is believe. And his issue is verse 11. You don't understand these things because you don't accept the witnesses that you have seen over and over again. Good news for Nicodemus is this is not where his story ends, and he ultimately will be there at the end, and one of the few, Joseph Arimathea, to put his life on the line for Christ and seemingly becomes a believer and is given a new heart and believes and fully understands this conversation of what he is teaching. Because the good news, although it's unsettling that there are no exceptions, Because purchase things, you know, no return, no exceptions. And you always want to go, come on. There may have been a wedding a few weeks ago, and I may own a suit that I don't fit in. And I went to a store, and I was like, I need this fitted. When? Friday. And it was Wednesday. And they're going, yeah, we can't do that. And I'm going, are you sure? <laughs> nope, can't do that. So I finally begged this guy, and he slid me a car. It's not like you're supposed to do it, because it's somebody else's business. Hey, I know a guy. Call this guy. So I called that guy, and he's like, I can do it. And I love that. Why? Because I found a way. It's an exception. I always think there's an exception to every rule. Maybe we can get away with something. And This is one issue you will never get away with. You're never going to be able to have a relationship with God through Christ by earning your way. No. There's no exceptions to this rule. God has to work first. You have to 
not do, right? But we're going to see next week. What's the example? Verse 14. Moses lifted up the servant, and there is simply a look to what he has done. So that whoever, verse 15, believes will have eternal life in him. The failure is not one of intellect, but a failure of belief. You and I don't need more knowledge. We need new desires, which only comes with a new heart, which Christ promises to give to those who believe and trust in him. And so it's unsettling, but it's comforting, because the verse you know so well, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Because the end of the story isn't that it can't be done. It's that God does enter into the world, John chapter 1, and he accomplishes salvation for us. We're going to see how that builds on itself in the coming weeks. As it even points to, we're going to see the issues, even with how it all ties together, I think, with John the Baptist and his very last witness. And we're left with verse 11. Do you accept the witness? Not the last time we'll be asked that question in the Gospel of John. What are you going to do with Christ? Who is he? Do you truly believe in him? Have you really trusted in saying it's something I must believe that he has completely done? Or are you hoping that you've been good enough? Instead of realizing, John chapter 3, you'll never be good enough. And you have to trust that God is the one who transforms your heart through Christ and his sacrifice and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we look to these truths and there's no possible way for us to go and grab a little glory for ourselves here. It's an unsettling reality of human nature that we are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. And we want to ask, what can we do instead of realizing the gap is too far, God is too holy. Rather, we should look to the one who can, the one who has. So encourage us, not only this morning, but even as we look towards next week and see such familiar verses and realize that God so loved the world. Because if he did not... He did not need to send his son a way of salvation, but he did. And may we respond to that by believing and trusting in him for our salvation. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.